Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Feel free to take a seat. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? I love it. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're so glad that you uh, chose to visit us today. On a weekend where we get to do Fall Fest, we get to gather together. That's always fun. On a weekend when all of you Broncos fans have hope for the season still, you get to exist in that till tomorrow evening, and then it's like, ah... Is it the same story as last year? I don't know. But my lions are going to do great, so life is going to be wonderful in the Walton household. It's got to happen some year. Uh, we, we are jumping into a new series, but, but really it's, it's part of three series in a row. For the last three weeks, we wrestled through a series called Crisis. We, we asked, what's the felt thing in the world, the thing that some of us might point to and say, there's something I can't put my finger on maybe, but I just feel all is not as it should be. Uh, how, how do we wrestle with that? And for the evangelical in us, maybe our easy answer is, well, Jesus is just the answer to everything, right? But, but, but for other people, maybe there's some questions about, is there something under the surface that, that isn't just that, but some felt need maybe I could put my finger on? We talked about identity. Uh, we talked about belonging. We talked about purpose, these big existential questions, and, and just wrestled with, how does Jesus speak in to those things? And now this next series, we're going to follow one of his earliest churches. First Corinthians, for some people, is the first letter that Paul ever wrote to a church, this great writer that wrote so much of the New Testament. It's one of the first times he starts to pen. This is, this is what the community of Jesus looks like, live in this way. And, and maybe there'll be some things that speak to us as a community, and that will push into a series where we're going to ask, who and what is South? Why are we here? For what reason do we gather together as a group of people? In this place, we are here for a specific place, right? We are Littleton, and we are the areas around it, and then to the wider world. And in this specific time, for some reason, you and I together, if you're part of South, we are in 2022 in the same community, learning together, asking the same things. And and there's a few things that maybe will land on there. We want to be able to be a place that welcomes people in, that recognizes that people are looking for a place to belong. But but then there's also the desire not to just make up experiences just for the sake of it, but somewhere to give people space to encounter Jesus, to actually get to know him. And maybe a third thing as well, somewhere for for us to be a community that if if we were just to to close up shop, just to call someone and say, do you know what, we kind of got bored, we're gonna stop doing this thing, we're gonna sell the building, we're gonna split all the money between us, we can't actually do that, just, you know, just anyone who's like, oh, is that an option? No, it's not an option, but but if we were to call someone and, and say, we're not doing this anymore, we were to call City Hall and Commissioner Gordon or whoever picks up the phone and, 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 and they would have a real problem if South wasn't here. That's the kind of community we long to be, a community for the world around us that cares about what it is. And so we get to wrestle with that through these different series, but that's not today. Uh, Today we are talking about Christians in the wild. Why that title? This is the first time the church moves outside of its native environment. It's outside of Jerusalem. It's spreading into the wider world around it. And, And for the first followers 
uh, of Jesus, they find themselves in some very different places. Uh, this church, Corinth, was planted by a guy whose original name was Saul, ah, uh, was, uh, and, and whose, whose name became Paul. So we read this in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. If you're new to the Bible, maybe new to, to following Jesus, there's a bunch of words that you might want some help with there, and, and that's fine. So, so synagogues, when it references that, of course, is, is maybe, it's maybe wrong to say a Jewish church, but, but that gives you the right picture. Damascus is a town that some of the first followers have started to end up in at this point. And when it refers to the way, it is simply what would later become known as Christianity. This guy, Saul, who will become Paul, is so committed to the church not spreading. He's not just saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lock it down in Jerusalem, I'm gonna get rid of it in Jerusalem. He's traveling to other places to get rid of it. He's going anywhere he can go to make sure. He's like the original flat on the curve guy. He's like, this isn't happening on my watch. I'm, I'm going somewhere else to take care of this. He wants to go and grab prisoners. And then, in this moment, he has his own Jesus experience. And there's this beautiful switch where the person most committed to ending it becomes the person most committed to continuing it. The guy that wants to stamp it out is the guy that is now desperately spreading it anywhere he can go. And, and that takes him to this town, city, Corinth. And this is a picture of Corinth, it doesn't mean a lot to anybody, and, and it could be anywhere. It kind of looks like the Led Zeppelin album, Houses of the Holy. It's got some like <laughs> steps and columns and some tranquility to it and all of those different things. But it is Corinth, you can take my, my word for it. Corinth is an interesting place. Corinth, Corinth is a place that, that had been destroyed in 140 BC because it rebelled against Rome. But by the time it gets to 44 BC, Julius Caesar, that, that guy from school, uh, he decides it's so valuable, he has to rebuild it. There's something about the location that just makes it crucial. Corinth just happens to have a couple of ports. It has a port directly against Italy and a port that leads directly into Asia. So suddenly, people could move loads of possessions from one place to another without going around this particular part of the Mediterranean Ocean, this, this one part that, that had such significant storms, people would say, when you go around this point, give up all thought of home. It's just a disaster. The trip's just terrible. Most people don't come back. Corinth created a way of avoiding that, and so people would move their possessions through Corinth, and with all of that, it became this place that was just vastly wealthy. There was no aristocracy, so the people that owned trades, that owned businesses, became richer and richer and richer, but it seems that the money somewhat filtered down to other people as well. It was a place just known for incredible wealth and a bunch of other stuff as well. This is the historian Strabo writing in the first century. The temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, and therefore it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. For instance, the ship captain, captains frequently squandered their money, and hence the proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. This was a place that was known for a bunch of different stuff. It was known for problems with sexuality. It was known for problems with promiscuity. All of these different things. We might say a few different things about Corinth. Corinth was rich. 
Corinth was liberal. Anything went in a town like Corinth. Corinth was diverse. People had come from all sorts of different backgrounds to land in this space. It, it, it was a town in Greece, so it was Greek. But it was also proudly Roman because Julius Caesar had built it. It had Jewish communities there. Anybody could come and gather in Corinth. This is the place that Paul takes this message and says, we're going to build the church, the, the people of Jesus in this place, in Corinth. The writer Gordon Fee says this, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Las Vegas, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It maybe gives you a picture to put alongside the word Corinth. It was all of those different things, but by extension, I'd say something else. Corinth is us. Corinth is us. If you know the history of Denver, Denver starts as a fairly small mining town. Why does it grow up? Because there's the threat of war and it's away from either coast. It can't be touched. And so federal money pours into Denver, which is there and safe. It's a particular geographical location that just happens to work, happens to be convenient. That's what Corinth was. Denver is diverse. Denver is liberal. When I moved here so a couple of years ago, what did I know about Denver? A couple of things. I knew that there were mountains, and I knew you guys had legalized cannabis. Now, that wasn't why I moved, just to clarify. Uh, well, maybe the mountains part, but, but there's, there's that reputation for the city. It's known as being liberal, and it's affluent too. Corinth, in so many ways, resembles us as a city. So the question becomes, how does the church survive with all of these other cultures around it? In a city where it, it doesn't necessarily fit, a city that's all of those different things, a city that's heavily Greek, heavily Jewish, heavily everything but not the church, how does it survive? Because you and I, most of us, unless we're sort of over, under the age of 40, we've probably all experienced what it is to live in a country that is fairly deeply Christian. Now, we may have complaints about just how that works at times, but when you read our law codes, where did they come from? Christian ethic. When you read historical documents, what do they center around? It centers around something distinctly Christian. We're used to a world that, to a certain degree, supports our values, that a culture that Christianity for a long time has been the dominant culture in. How does that feel when you're current? And it's completely the opposite. And, and maybe that's a point for how we have to deal with it if that becomes us. How do you deal with it when all of the culture around you is the opposite to the culture that you feel called to live out and live in? And so this is Paul's letter. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, who's never mentioned again, he just kind of disappears, to the, to, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. These few verses are the only nice things Paul will say until the last two verses. He starts off nice and kind. He starts off with a couple of things we'll look at in a second. And then for 15 and a half chapters, he guns into these people. He is mad. He's angry. He lets them know, you guys are not living out the way of Jesus. This thing is broken. This church is not operating well. But right now, he starts here to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, to, to saints. He calls them saints. And we might have some questions there. When he writes to the church in Philippi, the letter Philippians, these people are amazing. Like he says so many nice things about them. He's like, you guys are suffering, but you're full of joy and Jesus is gonna bring you more joy and everything is gonna be wonderful. And, and the Philippians, they feel like 
saints. But these guys, they're a mess. They're doing some of the worst things. They're, they're so broken, and yet he starts with saints, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Right off the bat, what Paul starts with is this. To the Corinthians, he says, it all centers on Jesus. It all centers on Jesus, and you, Corinthians, he says, are saints because of what he has done for you. That's his starting point, his basis for the whole letter, and he goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. He begins with Jesus, and particularly he begins with Jesus' grace. Paul begins with grace, and then he ends with grace too. At the back end of the letter in chapter 16, we read the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My call to all of you in Christ Jesus, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. In between, it's hard words, it's difficult, and we need to be prepared ourselves just for, for what Paul will say. But in the bookends, it's, it's all centers on Jesus, and it's all about grace. It's all about grace. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. This idea will come up in the letter at different points. These Corinthians love knowledge, they love wisdom, and so some of the problems are based on their desiring more. And he's like, no, you have it. You don't need any more. You have everything that you need. You've been enriched in every way. And that's how God confirmed our testimony about Christ amongst you. He's done everything that you need. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you firm to the end so you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord. He's doing two different things here. If you like theological words, he's talking about what it is to know positional sanctification and what it is to know progressive sanctification. Now, if those words mean nothing to you, that's fine. I'm, I'm going to help you. We're going to do some translation. The first is simply this. You are who God says you are because of what Jesus has done. It's positional. It is given to you, and it is given to me. You are a saint because of Jesus and his incredible work, his death and resurrection. That's the positional thing. But, but then there's a progressive idea that starts to come in, the idea that, that God rarely leaves people, or perhaps never leaves people where they are. There's a growth, there's a development, there's a change that goes along with that. And I wanted to give you this big picture illustration to help us understand this just a little bit. So I decided to learn the cello, um, which is a difficult instrument to play, as it turns out. So I went and got a cello, and I said, what I'm gonna do for, for, for South is I'm gonna play, I'm gonna break the bow. Um, <laughs> And I'm gonna play, I'm gonna play Bach's cello suite for the community. <laughs> now some of you laugh because you've heard Bach's cello suite. It is a delightful piece of music. It is stunning and rich, and I love this piece of music. I believe deeply in the notes that Bach wrote. And so I thought I'm gonna play it, and I wanted you to know what it sounded like first. So here's the great Yo-Yo Ma playing this piece.
and what a stunning piece of music. So I, I came up with this plan that I was going to play this piece, and you know, you'd see me and you'd see Yo-Yo Ma, and, and I said to my assistant, what do you think of this idea? Like, how do you think it will work? And she said, well, it depends on how good you are at the cello. And I said, oh, I've never held a cello in my life. I don't know anything about the cello. And she said, that's going to be a disaster. Um, and, 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 and so I went and hired myself a cello to learn this piece. Uh, and uh, it took me an embarrassingly long time to get it out of the case, I will admit, couldn't quite figure that out. Uh, and then I got really angry and stamped around the house because they didn't send me a bow. Uh, until my daughter found the bow in a compartment in the case, which was cunningly hidden. Um, that was a little embarrassing, too. And then I realized I didn't know how to tune a cello, which is, is a problem. I assumed I play guitar. I assumed the strings would be the same. And then I had this horrific moment where I first got the sheet music of Bach's Cello Suite Prelude, and I found that you can play two strings at the same time. And I was horrified. I was like, I had no idea. Uh, and so my desire to play you Bach's cello suite, if I'm honest, has not progressed particularly well. Uh, this is as far as I've got. I've learned to play Jaws, so I can do... Yeah. <laughs> Does deserve a round of applause. I, I, I'm very good at Jaws. Um, <laughs> And maybe by the end of the series, I'll be good at Bach's cello suite, too. But I'm less good at that right now. Here's what I feel like. I, as I say, I love this piece of music. It's one of my favorites. And I believe that Bach was a genius. I believe in every note that he wrote. I just can't, I just can't play it very well. And maybe some of you have felt the same when you read Jesus. You read something like the Sermon on the Mount. You read his beautiful ethical commands and this thing that he's put together. And you say, oh, yes, that for the world. That is what I long for. And then maybe you, like me, look at yourself and say, but I don't play those notes well. Don't play those notes well. And when Paul writes to this church in Corinth, what he says is he says it begins with grace and it begins with Jesus, you are who God says you are because of what he has done. But together we will work on those notes. And you may never be Yo-Yo Ma, but you will get somewhere beyond Jaws. And that's going to be a wonderful thing because my family is sick of Jaws, if, I, if I'm honest. I just like, don't even like the movie anymore. For Paul, it all centers on Jesus and his work for you and in you, that is the entire basis of the letter. He has done these things for you, and he is doing these things in you. That's the introduction. That's where everything is fluffy and friendly, and Paul is, is telling the church all of these wonderful things, and now we move into this season where he will just light them up. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions amongst you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought with all of the ethical conundrums that Paul will wrestle with, with all of his conversations about sexuality, all of his conversations about lawsuits and how the church treats each other in that way. He begins, he begins with unity. He begins with, you guys, I beg you to be one people. Paul will cover multiple ethical problems, but his first problem that he'll tackle, tackle is unity. If I was him, I'd start somewhere else. 
If I was him, I'd say, no, there's some things I need to talk to you about, church. And yet for him, this seems to be the most foundational thing. Be unified. And what he says is this. This is what I've been told. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have come to me, have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Some names there that you may not be familiar with. So Paul, you get. Paul, you know. Uh, I follow Apollos. Apollos was this Greek teacher that turned up after Paul and gathered this following to him. Maybe not intentionally, but, but simply because it was a Greek city and he was Greek. The Greeks are like the British. We, we have this in common. We both believe we invented everything unless we're told otherwise, and we don't even really believe it then. There's this sense of like, if I don't know, it must be British. And so when a Greek guy comes along and says, I'm going to teach you, this gathers Greek followers. This is Apollos, and then Cephas is a Greek word for Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus. When he turns up, there's a sense of, wow, you were with Jesus. He gains a following. And Paul says, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I am intrigued with what he would say to us about the way we pick people to follow. There's something about us as human beings that we, we long to follow somebody. We long to, to find some way of showing who we are by people that we follow. I, I looked on Instagram. These are the two most followed people on Instagram. Cristiano Ronaldo uh, has nearly half a billion followers. Khloe Kardashian, over a third of a billion followers. Cristiano Ronaldo kicks a ball for money and half a billion people Follow him. Now, he does it very well, and in the first service, I made the mistake of saying he kicks a football, and of course, I was corrected to be told it was a soccer ball and not a football at all, and I said, well, at least he uses his feet for the sport he plays, unlike some other sports I could mention. Khloe Kardashian apparently did something, something famous, something worth fame at some point, apparently, and yet these are the people that we follow. We have this desire to follow something, and that's not just a outside the church thing, that, that's the church as well. If you grew up like I did in the 90s Christian world, you know that we had like our version of every other, of re, every real celebrity, we would create another version. So there was Nirvana, and then we had DC Talk that did the same kind of videos, maybe different music, but they became like our celebrities. We would never have said we worshiped them, but there was this distinct feeling you were following someone, you were part of something. Somewhere it seems we have a temptation as human beings. When we follow someone, we don't just want to learn from them. We don't want to grow with them. Somewhere we're tempted to bow down before them. Somewhere there's something about us that says we move very quickly from following to worship. I would say that maybe Paul's concern first is we follow people as idols to bow before. We follow people as idols to bow before. Uh, this picture... You may in your minds connect with uh, current events, but it actually wasn't supposed to. This is the Queen of England that passed away uh, this week, and I was actually surprised. I'd already planned all of this before Thursday when she passed away, and I nearly didn't talk about it because I was actually like surprisingly emotional when I thought about my life. I thought, you know, I've only got three constants in my life. I've got Jesus as Jesus, my parents as my parents, and the queen as the queen. It, it just was, it really threw me. It really, we know nobody lives forever, but she'd almost convinced us that that wasn't the case. She's just <laughs> been around so long. And so, so she's someone I've always looked 
up to? And in actual fact, I found this picture of me on the way to Michigan for Christmas, watching the Queen's speech on FaceTime at 37,000 feet. The list of people that I would have made that effort for is incredibly short. It just, it's, it was really just her. So, so to me, there was something about her that I loved to, to follow, but I, I certainly didn't worship. And, and yet the series, Netflix, uh, the, seri- the Netflix series, The Crown, has this moment where they are looking at the coronation of the Queen. Uh, and there's a group of Americans in Paris with a British prince watching this together. And there's this moment where the Queen is taken to the place where they do the anointing. And no cameras are in there. It's private. It's separate. Uh, and one of the questions is, why don't we get to see that? And the prince says this. He says, because, we, because we're mortal. And she's about to become an immortal. She's about to become something different. Now, that can be right or wrong, but, but the point is we long for that. We long for that transcendence in people that we follow, and so we tend to move very quickly from just respect, just admiration to something else. And, and if you read the Queen's story, the way she framed her life was that she recognized she was following somebody else. Pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. She recognized what it was to follow somebody else. And yet, it doesn't matter whether the leader's good or bad, we have a tendency to start to think about about following as worship or something close to it. We see that in churches and we see that maybe in, in what is worst about churches. And so if you're outside of the church and you've seen that and said this whole thing seems broken, man, I'm sorry you've experienced that because that isn't what it's supposed to be. And Paul says to this Corinthian church, you talk about following Apollos, you talk about following Paul, you talk about following Cephas, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to be structured. We, We tend to follow people as idols to bow before, and Paul is concerned about how the Corinthian church treat their leaders. We tend to follow people for what we can get, and not how we can grow. What amazes me about this letter that Paul constructs, he's about to say something that catches me off guard. I don't understand initially why it's there, and then it seems to become maybe a little bit more apparent. He adds Jesus to that list. He adds Jesus to that list. I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. His implication seems to be you can follow Jesus badly. If, if the Corinthian church have taken Jesus as, as somebody they can, they can take glory from themselves, taken Jesus as someone say, oh, we're the really spiritual ones, we're the ones that have, have got it absolutely right, you guys are a bit of a mess, but we, we are good. If that's how you follow Jesus, it seems Paul says, no, that, that isn't how you're supposed to follow him at all. There's maybe this temptation to follow Jesus in the same way people are part of an entourage. This is from the TV show Entourage, which is based on Mark Wahlberg's early life, this actor where all of these people gathered around him because he became famous so quickly. And he talked about how everybody wanted something from him. They were all there for their own reasons. And when you look at entourages now with celebrities, we've all seen on the news these celebrities that they go around with this big crowd of people constantly with them. Mark Wahlberg has a, has a human alarm clock. He pays someone to be there all the time to wake him up when he needs to wake up. 
I have a phone that does that, I think, and, and I don't know what this system fixes for him because what happens if the human alarm clock's alarm clock doesn't work? Then he's in real trouble. But he does, he employs someone, and we see people gather around people as a cult sort of status, and we see uh, how they're there really perhaps for their own reasons. It's, it's why rich and famous people very rarely have true friends because everybody is there or something, and, and Paul seems to say that there's a way that you can follow Jesus simply for what you can get out of him. If he's there for your glory, that is not how the church is supposed to be structured. The writer, Caitlin Beatty, said this, the vast majority of us will run our races in ordinary and unglamorous ways, off the stage and off the screen. For every famous saint, there are millions of ordinary ones. Ordinary people are the primary way God has worked in and through the world over the centuries. More and more, it seems, we aren't content being ordinary Christians. There's a desire for fame, a desire for celebrity, and all of those different things, and it's, it's another way that maybe the church is broken, and you've seen brokenness in it. We tend to follow people for what we can get, not how we can grow and how they can point us to Jesus. And then Paul's big point, perhaps, we follow people into division and not unity. And this is his heartbreaking thought about the church, uh, just how divided it is. He says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. I love his like thinking out loud. He's like trying to figure out where, where was I? Uh, who was I baptizing? I'm not sure I remember, but his main point is I didn't baptize many of you. That wasn't why I was here. I am not the center of this story is maybe his big rhetorical point. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom, eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's Paul's central thesis, both when he says good things about the church in Corinth and when he says bad things. When he's saying good things, he reminds them Jesus is the center of everything. When he's correcting them, he says again, Jesus is the center of everything. Paul sees Jesus as the center of all things. And so maybe our question is why? What, what is he so captivated in. What has he seen that tells him that's so important? And to figure that out, I think we need to go back and look at this old story. We're going to turn for a second to this book, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 6, verse 2. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. Again, maybe some translation if you're kind of new to, to all of this. When it says, I am the Lord, it's a particular name for God. It's this name, Yahweh, that Jewish people would rarely speak out loud. It's a personal name, a relational name. God is generic as a name. It's, it could mean anything, and yet this was this moment where the nameless God, maybe, now has a name. It's this personal, relational type thing that these Jewish people experience that to someone like Paul would have been crucial for understanding who God is. But then there's a second story that comes up that nudges the story a little bit further along. In Exodus chapter 33, we're told this, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. You have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. 
Remember this nation is your people. Moses has this relationship with God. He like pushes up against some of the things that God says to him. It actually gets a little bit uncomfortable at times in the text, but, but this is his request almost, or maybe even his demand of God. And, and this is God's response. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? They've been given this personal relational name. They know God by a different name, by this name, Yahweh. But now Moses is like, we need your presence. We need to know that you're here. We need something distinct. And this time the response is, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, he wants something else now. Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Moses gets the thing maybe some of us have asked for, the, the, the experience of, of, actually, of actually knowing God in that kind of way. But, but this is what God says to him in verse 20. But you cannot see my face. But no one may see my face and live. There's that line that says, no, you, you can't see me face to face, you die, you wouldn't be able to handle it. When Paul writes about Jesus, and this is the first time maybe that he's ever written about Jesus, he's gonna start writing about him a lot to different churches. My feeling is he's gonna get better. At this point, he's just learning, he's just starting out, he says some things about Jesus that are compelling, but when you get to some of his, some of his later lessons, letters, sort of things he says, it's like literature beyond literature. It's just some of the most beautiful prose. It's almost poetry. This is what he says in Colossians chapter one. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything he might have the supremacy. He is the image of the invisible God. This is how distinct Paul believes Jesus is. He believes that in this moment that Jesus appeared, the faceless God now has a face. He believes that that plea of Moses, I want to see you, he says, I have done that now. I have seen I have seen the God of the universe, and he looks like Jesus. That means for Paul, as he writes this, he is baffled, completely baffled that anyone following Jesus has gotten to a point where they say, I am of Cephas, or I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or any of these other people. To him, it just, it just doesn't make sense because he's above all things, and in all things hold, him, in him all things hold together so that in everything he has the supremacy in Jesus. For Paul, the faceless God has a face. And that changes things. And that changes things. Jesus, one of the last things he said to his followers was, was this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The word people doesn't actually need to be in the, there in the text. It's kind of redundant. It doesn't really appear. Will draw all to myself is maybe a better reading of it. There's this idea that Jesus, when, when, when he is shared with people, will pull people towards himself, that he's somehow compelling. There's something about him that draws people in. And again, if you've experienced a church that doesn't show him well, 
I am sorry that you experienced that because it seems like it happens often. In actual fact, it seems like it's exactly what's happening in this Corinthian church. In chapter 11, we read this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. I told you, he's, he's going to take the gloves off. He's getting, he's getting feisty with them. Imagine someone coming to you. Imagine Paul coming to us as a church and say, when you gather together, guys, it's bad. Stop doing it. You're making things worse. You're damaging the church. Just, just stay home on Sunday morning. Get a, get a sleep in or something like that. Just don't be together because when you do, it's, it's bad. You do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions amongst you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. This is Paul in full sarcasm mood. He's like, no, no, no wonder you have to show that you're separate because that's how you know you're special, right? It's all the things that we talked about earlier. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. This is the essence of what he says here. When you gather together for communion, this moment that we did last week that we do regularly, this gathering round a table, this coming together to remember Jesus, he essentially says to them, when you do that, Jesus isn't there. He's absent. You are doing this wrong. This is not his table anymore. This is just you guys eating food. And some of you are hungry and some of you have enough. But if you think this is a thing you're doing and gathering with Jesus, he says you're wrong. Imagine hearing that as a church in the first century. When we get to the core of the language piece he uses, the Greek word is this sort of connection maybe between despise and disesteem. It, it might be summarized as you bring the church down. And haven't you been there too? And maybe again, you're outside of church and you're like, it feels like that happens all the time in lots of different ways. And, and maybe what goes along with that is this, you remove Jesus from the center. As Paul has begun with Jesus is the center, and he says that to the Corinthians when things are going well, and Jesus is the center is his reminder when things are not going well. We might say this, to Paul, Jesus is the centripetal force of the church. He's the thing that pulls everything, the gravitational force that should pull everything towards him. And what he says to this church is, he's no longer the center of what you guys do. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. To Paul, a church that doesn't have Jesus at the center will not do that. And he's no longer really the church. And so the question I guess we end with for us is this one. What do we do about that? How do we as a community of people make sure that isn't our narrative? How do we ask what Paul might say to South that he also said to the Corinthian church? What might he say to me? Because I don't know about you, but for me, there's a bunch of stuff that I can let take center really easy, both for South and for me as well. There's so many good things, so many things in my life that I can place as the very center, the main thing, the absolute. How do we make sure that's not us? What are the steps? And maybe, maybe one is simply to begin by reflecting, to just notice what is the center what is the thing that pulls me towards it? What have I placed there? What has self placed there? 
Uh, maybe uh, we would say that like the, Corinthian, the church in Corinth, we have endless options for a place in the center. We can put so many things there. Maybe the second one is to look. Now, now maybe if you don't follow Jesus, you've never really looked at him or examined who he was or what he said, and maybe that's something that you might do, but maybe if you do and you have followed him, maybe looking again is a step that you might take. You remember, if you're married, if you've ever been in love, those first moments where you just gaze at each other all the time, you're just like, oh, it's so nice, we're just, we don't need anything around us, we're just gonna stare at each other into each other's eyes, and it's all just, just goofy. And there's some of you doing it now, I love it, you guys are wonderful, you're just, you're just, you're just goofing out, just looking into each other's eyes. Uh, that changes in some ways. There's other stuff, there's other things that come into life, there's other things that take effect. Maybe there's times where the marriage struggles or there's times where life's just so busy that that kind of stuff stops. That same thing, apparently, some of the writers of the New Testament will say is true in, in faith, in, in Revelation, the writer there says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Maybe there's this call to look back at Jesus and to be reminded just why he's the center why he needs that place, why a church that isn't centered on him actually doesn't really matter or qualify as a church anymore. It all centers on Jesus. He is our best story. In fact, he is our only story. The other stuff, it all has to fit around there. We are a Jesus church. Perhaps that goes without saying or should, Sometimes maybe you're called to reiterate the basics and at the start of this letter to the Corinthians, I would suggest that's what Paul does. He starts with this idea, everything centers around Jesus. You are either a Jesus church or you're not a church at all. Let's stand and we're gonna ask Aaron and the team to lead us. And maybe there's that reflection point for you. Maybe you get to reflect on how God might be speaking. Maybe you get to lead a department in the church, you get to be involved in some particular way and maybe you're asking that question, how is Jesus the center? I ask that question a lot for me, for this church. Maybe for you personally, there's that question. How is he the center? Maybe for you, there's the honest question, does he deserve or need to be the center? Maybe you're wrestling with faith, wrestling with who Jesus is or might be or who you used to think he was or all of those different things. We're just gonna take a moment to reflect and then we're gonna look, just return our gaze for just a few moments. For some of us that have followed Jesus for a while, we're gonna return our gaze to the God that first captivated our hearts. For some of us, we're gonna bring our questions, our doubts and our uncertainties. And for a moment, we're just going to ask God to speak into them. Maybe if you've never followed Jesus yourself, for you, it's a first looking at Jesus and an asking maybe of question, are you really who these people say you are? Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your life looks like, you're invited to come. Let's sing. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.